My name is Tony Schaefer, if we haven't had a chance to meet, and I oversee our, our Next Gen Ministries. And uh, I don't get to preach very often, but when I do, I generally like to preach a little bit about Next Gen Ministry. It's what I, it's what I breathe day in and day out. All the people in my office uh, work towards that goal, and it's just what I think about. And so if I have a moment uh, to share with you, I'd love to share a little bit about what we do. Uh, we use a symbol in our Next Gen Ministry that I hope is going to show up up there there it is. We use this symbol just to help us remember what we're doing, to keep all of our different areas focused. If you can believe it, uh, the kind of people that work with little babies sometimes have different priorities than the people that work with teenagers, and sometimes they're in conflict with the priorities of people that work with kids. If you can believe that, that there are some different personality types there. And so we have to have some things that keep us focused and help us to remember what we're ultimately Doing And so we use this symbol of an arrow, and I didn't just make it up. Uh, I actually took this from a passage of Scripture, Psalm 127. If you are a parent and you've spent time with me, you've probably heard me reference this. If not, I'm about to. So here it is. If you have your Scriptures, uh, open it up to the book of Psalms. This is a psalm from King Solomon, wise King Solomon. And uh, he starts out like Solomon does. Unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. Solomon's always talking about things in life that are vain, that are vanity. And he said, unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise up early and you stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. And, and here's where we talk about children. It says, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Uh, I like that. Unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. You rise up early and you stay up late. Any parents here, you know that as soon as you bring that little baby home, your sleep schedule all of a sudden takes a change. You start staying up late to strange hours. You start waking up whenever they wake up. I have a couple of early risers in my house, and so my oldest has an alarm, and he's not allowed to come out of his room until the alarm goes off because he'll be out at like 4 in the morning banging on the walls. Now, my 2-year-old, she just starts. Whenever she wakes up, she picks up the hardest thing she can find, starts banging on her door, saying, Daddy, 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 it's time to get up. And those of you who have teenagers, older children, you know that when they start staying out later, you start staying up later. But what Solomon says here is, unless the Lord is involved in what you're doing, all of your efforts are in vain. Unless the Lord is a part of what we're doing, then we have a tendency to labor and work and try for things that don't really end up giving us the result that we want. And then he takes this pivot and he says, children are like arrows. Now, if you know anything about arrows, arrows have a very specific design. They're designed for a purpose. They're designed to leave. You don't want to just keep your arrow. You actually want it to go out away from you. And wherever your arrow lands, you want it to cause a great change wherever it impacts when it finally reaches its destination. And children are like arrows. And we have to remember that in every stage, we're preparing them to leave us and head out into the world and make a change. And that's why we use this symbol, the symbol of the arrow, to help us remember that, to help us focus on the things that we're doing and ask ourselves, are the things that we're doing equipping parents and helping parents to prepare their young people to head out into the world and make a change? And so there's a few things about the arrow that help us to remember that, but I wanted to draw a little bit of a contrast. Uh, something that is not an arrow is a boomerang. There's a lot of things about a boomerang that are different from an arrow. See, I work with children, and so I, I gotta keep you guys focused. This is where I pick up these things. Uh, they like to have object lessons, and I imagine you do too. So the biggest difference, I think, between a boomerang 
and an arrow is that I've never hit my secretary with an arrow. At uh, my last church, this isn't why I'm not there anymore, but, uh, but at my last church, uh, I had a summer intern, and uh, my summer intern, Mark, was doing what summer interns do. He was cleaning out the closet. You see, during the year, we use a lot of weird things to try to teach kids the gospel. And when we're done with them, we just chuck them in the closet, and we say, we'll let the intern clean it out in the summer. So he was cleaning out the closet, and he found uh, not this boomerang. He found a boomerang, uh, and it was uh, it was more of a plastic one, but it still had a little bit of weight to it. And so he came in my office, and he said, Tony, can we try this thing out? And I said, heck, yeah, we can try that out, Mark. Let's go find out what this thing does. I didn't even remember where it came from. Uh, so we took it outside, and uh, our church secretary saw us going outside. She was curious. Miss Patty, uh, you can tell I have some respect for her because her name is Miss Patty, not just Patty. But Miss Patty came out, and so Mark was over there, and I was over here, and Patty was a safe distance, or what she thought was a safe distance away. And so I hurled back, and I chucked that boomerang, and I thought it would go kind of sort of near where Mark was going. And it did go in that direction for a little while, but it did what boomerangs do, it suddenly took a sharp turn, it turned over, and I will forever remember the sound of the thwack as this boomerang hit Miss Patty right in the neck and in the chest. It left this big red mark, uh, and she didn't want to play with us anymore after that. She went inside. So, But I've been practicing, and so let's see if I'm any better. <laughs> Nobody flinched. You guys know me better than that. Uh, no, actually, I've never thrown a boomerang since. And since even after I bought this one, I just I resisted the temptation. I said, I know what happens. I'm not doing it. But, you know, a boomerang is different from an arrow in a lot of ways. Uh, first off, it's dull. It's not sharp. It's dull. And I don't think anybody here would want me to call them dull. I don't think that any of us would want to be called dull. We all have an idea of what that means. It's the opposite of sharp. We want to be a sharp person. We don't want to be dull. We don't want to be dim. Uh, the other thing about a boomerang is that it's crooked. And we all know what it means when someone says that a person is crooked. You know, a crooked person is a person who gives an indication that they're going one direction, but all of a sudden they have intentions to turn another direction. It seems like they're on your side, but then all of a sudden you wake up one day and they're on their own side doing their own thing. They say they're going to do one thing and they do another. And sometimes it's even internal, you know, that we have every intention. We want to go this way, but something happens. The next thing you know, we're going that way and we're doing something different than what we intended to do. A boomerang is dull. A boomerang is crooked and a boomerang spins around in a circle. Boomerang spins around every which way. An arrow goes in one straight direction, but a boomerang is spinning, and its spinning motion means that it takes a curved path. And a lot of us, at one time or another in our lives, have felt like we were spinning. We felt out of control. We felt like we don't know what our direction is. It's like shiny object syndrome. We chase this thing for a little while, and then we chase that thing, and we don't end up getting anywhere because we're just spinning around in circles, and we find ourselves coming back to the same place over and over and over again. Now, if you uh, are a boomerang enthusiast, I apologize because I'm really using this boomerang as a very negative illustration. Uh, there are a lot of positive reasons and there's a lot of heritage in boomerangs. Uh, this is just an object lesson if you uh, are an expert boomeranger or whatever that is. Uh, I apologize. But we use it to draw this contrast because it helps us to focus on the differences in the arrow. I said that the boomerang is dull and the opposite of dull is... Sharp. Yeah, an arrow is sharp. The end of an arrow, if it's intended uh, to be sharp, if it's not a practice arrow, a real arrow is going to be sharp. And we understand what sharp means. Sharp things cut. 
You can write that down in your Bible. That's your lesson for today. Sharp things cut. Sharp things separate one thing from another, or they pierce. And in the case of an arrow, it's not just sharp, but it's actually pointed. Uh, I remember a story I read. Uh, some archaeologists were excavating a site uh, with some ancient peoples, and uh, they found some, some tools that they had made. They'd made some flint knives, and they wanted to see just how sharp these flint knives were. And so they got out their microscopes, and their microscopes didn't see close enough, so they had to draw them bigger and bigger microscopes. And they found out these flint knives actually had the sharpness of one atom. They came down to one atom. They were razor sharp, even sharper than a razor. And I mean, that's how we measure sharpness. We measure sharpness by how focused, how pointed, how narrow that end is. And as people, we want to be sharp people. How do we become a sharp person? Well, when I think about sharp and I think about the Bible, I think about this passage from Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As a Christian, as a Christ follower, I would say the way that you get sharp is to spend time in Scripture, to spend time reading the Word of God. And when you do that, when you read the truth of the Bible, you can begin to divide truth from lies because you know what the truth is, and it's so narrowly focused. You can begin to, to divide uh, the, the things in the world of, from the things of God. You can begin to divide faith from fear. You can begin to divide and understand what's going on in your life. The thing about an arrow is it comes to a very, very fine point. And I would say that the scriptures come to a very, very fine point. You see, all 66 books of the Bible point ultimately to the person and character of Jesus. The Old Testament is laying out the law and laying out grace so we can understand what those things are. And Jesus came to fulfill the law and to give us grace. And everything points towards that. The problem is that when we encounter an issue, it's a little bit too late to get sharp. You have to get sharp before you try to cut through something. Let me give you an example. When I was a young person, I grew up in a, in a very conservative church. And we learned a lot of things about the Bible, but some of those things didn't necessarily always connect. And as I got older, I began, to, I began to find that some of those things weren't entirely true and didn't actually work. And I took kind of a step back from my faith. And I said, you know what? Some of these things aren't right. Maybe all of it isn't right. And, and God got a hold of my heart. And I had a conversation with him uh, where I just kind of called out to him and said, God, if you're there. And I believe it's one of the few times in my life where he actually spoke back to me. And so I started this path with God saying, I don't really know everything about God, but I know God is real. And God, if you'll just reveal yourself to me. And I started reading the Bible with new and with fresh eyes. And right about that time, I made a friend. Uh, this friend was a Jehovah's Witness. And so he started bringing some of his friends to my house. And I was like, it's on. I'm, I'm sure that I know about Jesus and I'm going to convert this guy and all of his friends. I'm going to win every conversation. I mean, this is just a side note. You probably shouldn't go into a conversation wanting to win. That's not a very good way to, to enter into a conversation. People don't appreciate that. And he didn't always appreciate that. I noticed that he progressively would bring older and older people with him uh, because I won the first couple of conversations. But I hit this one day where he showed up with this magazine because uh, they have a lot of materials. And his magazine, the title was, Should You Believe in the Trinity? And I was like, heck, yes, you should believe in the Trinity. It's like a real cool symbol. It's on the front of my Bible. And uh, I've always grown up believing in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together they're all God. And he started to unpack some scriptures that, that really – made it sound a lot like you shouldn't believe in the Trinity. He began to bring out these Bible verses that would say, well, Jesus is God's son, 
but he's not really God, or Jesus is kind of like a God or sort of God-ish, and he had his own Bible translation that was a little bit different from mine, and I just didn't have anything to say back. I said, I believe that Jesus is God because my mom told me, I guess. I really didn't have anything, and so I had to go back to a friend of mine and say, I don't know, is Jesus God, and if so, how can you? How can I know? And he pointed me to a scripture that's really become my life verse. It's John 8, 58, and it's where Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees, and they were trying to tell him that he didn't have the authority to say the things that he was saying, and he said this phrase, before Abraham was, I am. And for Jewish people, they would know that I am is the name of God, the name that God gave to Moses. And you can tell that they knew what he was saying by the reaction because they picked up stones to stone him because it was blasphemy for a man to claim to be God. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And if we want to follow Jesus in any way, we have to follow him all the way. And he claimed to be God. And so for me, that is the singular point of my entire life, that Jesus is God. He claimed to be God, he predicted his death, burial, and resurrection, and then he pulled it off for everyone to see. And so everything in my life is built behind that one point. I, I would encourage you to find your point. F find the point of your life. Ask yourself, what is the point of my life? And if you don't have a point to your life, then your life is pointless. If you don't have a point, it's pointless. I would encourage you, take time to study the scripture and whether or not you can make the same conclusion that I do, at least take the time to really look at what it says. And if you are a Christ follower, the only way to be able to cut through the lies of the world is to hide the word of God in your heart. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide. The other thing about an arrow is that it's sharp. It's also very, very straight. Everything about it is aligned behind that central point. You know, an arrow has some really unique characteristics. Uh, a bullet sometimes can make an impact, but not penetrate. But everything in the arrow is behind that one point. So when it hits something, it's actually not just the force of the tip, but it's the force of the entire arrow behind it that pushes it through, the momentum behind it. Now, I know there's some engineers here, and I'm probably using the wrong words, and you could probably explain it better than I can, but I know this, that everything in the arrow is built behind here, and the whole thing pushes it through. I'm sure there's words like velocity and momentum, and there's numbers, but it's all built behind this one idea. And see, when we're crooked in life, we end up wasting our momentum. We kind of go in one direction and we go in the other, and we end up accomplishing a lot of nothing. We end up kind of spinning in circles because of that crookedness in our life. I would say that once you find the point of your life, you need to build your life behind that point. Everything in your life should line up behind whatever that point is in your life. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself being a crooked person or you're going to find yourself bent out of shape. Psalm 127 that I read at the very beginning was written by King Solomon. And King Solomon was arguably the wisest man to live by worldly standards. Uh, he studied everything that he possibly could, and he tried to look for meaning in life. He tried to look for meaning in this world, and he came up to the conclusion there is none. Everything is meaningless. The only thing that has any meaning is following after God. And so his book of Ecclesiastes, it's kind of this mix of worldly wisdom and uh, really depressing uh, phrases. And then at the end, he finally comes to the conclusion that there is a God, and so you should honor God. And so early on in his book of Ecclesiastes, he says, what's crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Uh, now, he was speaking from, from worldly standards. You know, a crooked person can't ever straighten themselves out. Things that are made crooked can't ever be fixed. If it's already that way, how can you do it? How can you make something straight that's not? And then a little bit later in chapter 7, he, he softens it a little bit, and he asks it as a question. He says, consider what God has done 
Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Who can straighten out things that are crooked? And we all understand this idea that, you know, we're born a little bit crooked. If you've raised children, you know that you don't have to teach them to misbehave. They figure that out all on their own. Because we're all born with a little bit of that sin nature. We're all born with a tendency to focus on ourselves rather than God and others. And so Solomon says, it can't be done, but if it could be done, who could do it? And I don't think that Solomon ever really got the answer to that question. If you follow Solomon's story, he didn't really follow God uh, for his whole life. He kind of drifted away from God. But a little bit later, a prophet named Isaiah came. And Isaiah was speaking to God's people. He was speaking to the Israelites, and he was telling them, you need to turn back to God today. You need to honor God with your whole heart, and God is going to rescue you. And as a matter of fact, something greater still is coming. God is going to rescue you in a way that you can't even comprehend yet. And he was prophesying. He was talking about the coming Messiah. He was talking about Jesus. He was talking about God rescuing them in the moment, but he was also talking about the distant future. And Isaiah said, you know, there's going to be this day where a voice is going to cry out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And every hill is going to be brought low and every valley is going to be brought up and everything that's crooked is going to be straightened out. There's going to be a day where someone's going to come and straighten out the whole thing. And in the book of Luke, Luke is quoting Isaiah when he talks about John the Baptist who went before Jesus uh, that's a lot of people. We're tracing it all the way back. Solomon didn't figure it out. Isaiah prophesied about it. Luke quoted Isaiah when he was talking about John the Baptist who was proclaiming Jesus. And he says it this way, a voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Solomon asked the question, who can straighten out what God has made crooked, I would say that Jesus can straighten out what God has made crooked. I would say the only one that can straighten out a crooked person is Jesus. The only one who, who can change the things in us that are permanently towards the things that we know that are wrong is Jesus. And, and we have a symbol of that in baptism. We, we were able to baptize a few people a few weeks ago, and it's always an honor and a privilege to be able to do that. And, and baptism is such a powerful symbol. It's, it's saying, you know what, the things that are in me that are not right are too much for me to fix. I recognize that there are things that are wrong in me, and, and I can't fix this on my own. Nothing that I could ever do could ever make me righteous in God's eyes. But because Jesus died and rose again, I accept that. And that's why we go under the water. It's like putting away that crooked person and rising up as a whole new creation in Jesus. I think there's some real powerful imagery in that idea that Jesus was a Jewish carpenter. And a good carpenter can make something straight out of a crooked board. And so I praise God that when we get bent out of shape, when our hearts are crooked, Jesus can straighten us. And so what does it mean to spend time with Jesus? We call that prayer. When you talk to Jesus, when you invite him into your life, when you invite the Holy Spirit to be with you, we do that in worship. That's, that's part of uh, what, why worship is so important. It's not just singing, but it's actually singing to God and recognizing that God is here and inviting him into your heart. And this crazy thing happens. When you take your crooked heart to God, he tends to straighten it out a lot of times just by his presence. What do I mean by that? You might hate your neighbor. And you might have a lot of good reasons to hate your neighbor. I don't know if you have the same neighbor that I do, but I've got some reasons. And I could bring those to God and say, God, he did this, he did that, he did this other thing, and so I'm going to burn his crops. And God would say, you know what? You've done all of that and more to me, and I forgive you. And so you need to go and love your neighbor as I have loved you. Sometimes just spending time in that presence, sometimes just praising God. I can go to God all bent out of shape. 
because I'm not getting what I want. I see somebody else who's got something a little bit nicer, a little bit bigger, a little bit better than what I've got. And I can go to God and say, God, I don't have the things that I want. And then God a lot of times asks me, but do you have the things that you need? And I would say, yeah, actually I do. And I have more than I need through my blessings that God has given me. When we get bent out of shape and when our hearts are crooked, prayer, prayer can straighten those things out. The Holy Spirit can straighten those things out in you. So we use this arrow to remember to be sharp, to be straightened out. And the arrow has these three things on the end. Uh, does anybody know? Do we have any archers in the room? What are these three things on the end? What are they called? Some people are saying feathers and some people are saying fletchings. Uh, yeah, they're both right. They're both correct. I was a little intimidated to talk in detail about arrows because I found out that our senior pastor is actually a champion archer, not just an archer, but Pastor Greg is a state champion archer. And so I'm not going to get too much into uh, how the fletchings work, but I know this. They help it to go straight. They help it to go straight. We have a sharp tip and we have all the force that's behind it. But if we don't have something to keep it on its path, it's going to drift and it's going to wobble. And the way these feathers, these fletchings work is that when it begins to drift off path, friction happens. The wind will push against these two and it'll push it back down. Or if it drifts over to the left a little bit, you can see the wind will start to hit this side and it'll push it back straight. These are the things that when we get off path, they push us back straight. And you know what? I have some people in my life that have enough candor to tell me when I get off path. You know, I have people in my life that, that when I start to say things that don't make a lot of sense and don't line up with scripture, they're willing to call me on those things. You know, I have people in my life that, that just by their presence, when I step into their presence and they have a smile and they have the glow of the Holy Spirit in them, it, it causes me to check myself and ask, you know what? Am I really loving God the way that I should? Am I really living the way that I should? Just by their presence. And we're actually designed to be that way. The people that God puts in our life help us to stay straight, help us to stay focused on the things that he wants us to focus on. I, I could talk about this for a long time because it's really what drives me in ministry. This idea that God works in and amongst the community of believers to encourage us to become the things that he wants us to believe. First uh, Corinthians 12 and, and Romans 12 talk about this. And uh, I talk about those all the time. But there's this one that I want to focus on. This is Ephesians chapter four. This is the Apostle Paul and he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he talks for a long time about how the church is made up of all different kind of people. If you didn't know that, look around. And that's one of the things that I love about our church is we have a variety of different people from a variety of different backgrounds. And God actually wants it to be that way. And he even gives us different gifts and makes us different on purpose so that we can work together. Not everybody is a pastor. Not everybody is a worship leader. Not everybody works in the nursery. Not everybody's an apostle or a prophet. Everybody has different gifts, and all of those gifts come together to build us up so that we can reach maturity, so we can become the things that God wants us to be. And so in verse 14 of Ephesians 4, he says it this way, then, that is, then after we work together and we've achieved unity, then we will no longer be infants. That's really what I do in ministry. I try to take people from being infants to no longer being infants. And that's a lot more than just growing up physically. That's growing up spiritually, emotionally, mentally. So then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemings. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. You need people in your life who love you enough to tell you the truth. Even when the truth hurts, 
See, we can't do this thing on our own. We can't follow Christ. We can't grow into the people that we're supposed to be. We can't be like an arrow and make a change in the world on our own. And we were never meant to. We were meant to do this thing together. I mean, that's why we honor our graduates as a whole church, because all of us have a part in what we've done to raise them to go out and make a change. And that's why we have to continue to come together. And so graduates, as you head out from here, uh, as you head out into your new lives, I hope that you will take the time that you'll put in the effort to find a new church. If you're leaving and you're moving away to another place, I hope that you'll take the time to find community. Now, you're not going to find a pastor as good as Greg. You're going to have to settle. It's going to be okay. But you can do it because you need people in your life that can help you to stay in direction. And if you're here in our church and, and you would say that you're not really in community, maybe if you love the worship and you love the teaching, but you're not really spending any time with anybody who's going to speak the truth to you, we have small groups for that. We have Bible studies for that. Serving along some, somebody else is a great way to start doing those kind of things and get some community in your life. If you just want somebody to tell you the truth, I'll do it. I'll tell you the truth a lot. But you probably won't have as much love from me as you might get from somebody else. Uh, pastors are usually not good for that kind of accountability. So find somebody else who can give you that accountability, who can speak the truth in love to you. And when you do these things, when you align your life around a central point, when you figure out what your life is about, and when you build your life behind that idea, and when you set up things in your life to make sure that you stay focused on what you're supposed to do, then you're like an arrow and you can change the world. I think everybody has it in their hearts that we want to do something that makes an impact bigger than ourselves. We all want to leave a legacy. We all want to change the world in one way or another. I would say the greatest way to change the world is to spend time looking into the scriptures and finding, really finding what your, what your focus is, really finding out what the point of your life is. I would say that it's building your life around that. And when you find the things in your life that don't quite line up with scripture, that don't quite line up with God, when God convicts you of things in your life that don't line up with his will, change those things. Take those things out. Let God straighten you out and put the things in your life, the guardrails in your life that will keep you on that path. To our seniors, this is my encouragement to you. As you head out, as you start making your own decisions, as you start building your life, remember these things. We call these things spiritual disciplines. They're simple things that will help you to grow into the person that Christ wants you to be. And church, I pray that, that you would join us in raising the next generation to do that. Find a place where you can serve. Find a place where you can begin to teach those scriptures, where you can support a parent, where you can speak some truth and speak some love. And, and if you're a Christian, if you believe, but, but you've never really involved yourself in the things that are going to help you to make an impact in the world, maybe today's the day where you make a commitment. Where you say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to really figure out what I believe. I'm going to start living out the things that I believe, and I'm going to get people in my life who can help me to do that.